0: All right, church, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, you may not know this, but we don't just have a church vision here, but we also have a city vision. We wanna see the quarter of a million people who call Winston-Salem home have an opportunity to see here and respond to the gospel. Now, we know that no one church can do that or accomplish that on its own. We actually believe it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people, and that collaboration among churches isn't a nicety, it's a necessity, and so we do several times a year different events and opportunities together with other churches, this year we did Crash the Dash. Uh, This was an event that started on Wednesday, went through yesterday. Uh, We had almost 100 people serving at Cook Elementary School and other places all around. And here's what we were doing. We were going to places, and we were serving them in Jesus' name. Uh, Here's what Christians try to do. We try to go to places, and we want to uh, bring help and give hope. That anywhere we go, we say, how can we help? And then as we're helping, we're building significant relationships, we're having conversations, we're seeing needs, and we're sharing the hope that we have in Christ. We're very, very excited about our partnerships with other churches as well as with organizations in the city, and we just wanted to pray for them at the beginning of the service. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the many churches that helped uh, with Crash to Dash. I thank you for Harvest Bible Chapel in Winston. Uh, I thank you for uh, churches like Redemption Hill Church and Tapestry Church and others. I thank you for Cook Elementary School and other organizations that are meeting needs in our city. And we just want to come alongside and do two things, Lord. We want to help and we want to bring the hope of the gospel. We ask this in your name. Amen. What are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? What are you worried about? What are you scared about? Maybe it's spiders, maybe it's snakes, maybe it's heights, maybe it's clowns. Uh, I was reading about phobias this last week, and, uh, and they said there's a, ph- there's a phobia for anything, as you would imagine. Uh, one of the phobias is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the top of your mouth. There's a name for that phobia. Can you believe it? That's right. Um, the two biggest phobias or the two biggest fears that always show up anytime a study's done, and you may have heard this before, is the fear of death and dying understandably. And, and oftentimes you'll hear the second biggest fear you'll often hear is public speaking, but that's actually not true. The second biggest fear that people have is being publicly embarrassed or shamed. So actually the whole reason that people are afraid to get up and talk is they're afraid they'll have nothing to say or they'll say something stupid and they'll public. And that's just why this isn't even a joke. The, the greatest fear for people is to publicly embarrass themselves while dying. <laughs> yeah. It's a real fear. And so, but we're not talking about that today. We're going to be talking about the type of fear that paralyzes us, the type of fear and anxiety that we all go through and have at different times. Now, I'm not talking today about chemical imbalances in the brain. I'm not a doctor. I'm sure you guys know that by now, okay? I'm not a doctor, not talking about chemical imbalances in the brain, not talking about a broken brain, not talking about mental illness, not talking about panic attacks. I'm going to be talking about the anxiety we all go through every day. Anxiety is a big topic in the Bible. Peter's going to end his message today talking about anxiety, and no wonder. There's a lot that these people were fearing. They'd lost family, they lost friends. they potentially lost their jobs, persecution was increasing, and then what causes anxiety for most of us is they didn't know what the future was going to hold. And it's the unknown of the future and our ignorance and finiteness that causes so much anxiety in our lives. This is why, by the way, guess how Paul ends the letter to the Philippians? Go read it later, Philippians chapter four. Guess what he's talking about anxiety. How about the Lord Jesus Christ in His most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount? How about the very middle of that sermon, which would be chapter six in, in Matthew? Guess what it's about? Anxiety. And, and this is a relevant message for all of us. I was with a bunch of young Christians recently, probably in the last year, and somehow the topic of anxiety came up. And and one person after another just raised their hand, not everyone in the room, but I would say 75% to say that they consistently struggle with anxiety. That anxiety is a big deal. And some of you, I can tell you what you're afraid of. Some of you, you are so afraid of being stuck. It's like, I don't wanna be stuck alone. I don't wanna be stuck in this life stage. I don't wanna be stuck being single. I don't wanna be stuck at this income level. I don't want to be stuck in this career. I don't want to be stuck under this boss. I don't want to be stuck in this city or in this house. A lot of us, we have anxiety because we feel, we look to the future, we go, this may always be it. I may always have a very difficult marriage. I may always be infertile. And we feel stuck. Here's another thing that many people are afraid of. Many people are afraid of conflict. And some of you, it's holding you back. There are conversations that you have been avoiding and ignoring. There are conversations you need to have with your spouse, or you need to have with your boss, or you need to have with your kids. This surprises many Christians, but the Bible says being a coward is a sin. Because it's when God is small and man is big. And so many people, because they're so afraid of conflict, they never have the hard conversation with their kid, or with their friend, or with their spouse. Some of you, you are terrified of criticism and embarrassment. And so you never say anything meaningful, you never take a stand, and the worst thing you can do to somebody who's very afraid of criticism is give them a device that's connected to social media. And then they find their value in how many people like and share and, and put an emoji or something like that on their, on their thing. Some of you, you're afraid of failure. And that's why you, you've known you need to leave your job and do something different, but you're, you're afraid. You're like, well, maybe the devil I know is better than the devil I don't know. So this is why some of you haven't asked the girl out that you know you need to try to ask out. This is why some of you haven't shared your testimony or shared the gospel. So with somebody that you know, God's put on your heart. And so this, this topic of fear and anxiety is such a big issue. And I want to encourage you. This is, should be a great encouragement to us tonight that God's word has answers for our problems. That the pains and the pressures and the problems of our life are answered by God's word. And I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. And I want us to together see how Peter ends by talking about this massive issue in our society called anxiety. And we are more anxious than ever today. Do you know that 43% of Americans, according to a recent study, take mood-altering medication every day simply to cope with the reality of their lives? That's almost half of Americans put a pill in their mouth to deal with the reality of their life. And if they're not doing that, they might be self-medicating with entertainment or too much alcohol. And so this is a message that from God's Word, we can learn God's answer for our anxiety. I want us to see this, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with key word, humility toward one another. That's gonna show up three times here. I want you to see it. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is going to be your best friend in fighting anxiety. And I'm gonna explain this, but here's what it goes: humble yourselves. Humble yourselves therefore under, and this is key, the reason people are anxious, the reason I'm anxious, the reason you're anxious is you don't know God well enough, and your view of God is too small. So what, look what it says in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. If you're going to be a humble person and you're going to fight anxiety, you need a big view of God, a God that's bigger than your suffering and better than your sin. And he goes on, the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. People are anxious all the time because they're worried they're not going to get their chance. They're worried they're not going to be seen, they're not going to be elevated. And here there's a promise God's going to exalt you at the right time. Verse seven, casting all of your keyword anxieties. If it's small enough to worry about, it's small enough to pray about. He's just casting all of your anxieties on him because, and this is so interesting, because he cares for you. Now, I want you to see how verse 6 and 7 work together. The character of God is both ultimate and intimate. That God is both above and reigning over all people and places and presidents and political parties and perspectives and genders and ideologies and kings and cultures and kingdoms. That we have a massive God, and that's the first thing you need to know to fight anxiety. God is big, and God's in control, and God is good. And then there's a second thing, and he cares for you. See, what happens is, in Islam, God's big but doesn't care. In modern Christianity, God cares but isn't big. And, And we have to have both of these, that God has a mighty hand and a caring heart. And then he goes on to say this, be sober-minded, be watchful, and he's going to tell you another reason. You can be anxious. You should be anxious, but you don't need to be. Your adversary, you have an intelligent, supernatural person who hates you. His name is Satan. Your adversary, and that means he is against you. By the way, Satan means adversary, devil means accuser. That's what those words mean. So Satan is against you to accuse you. And then it says this, your adversary, the devil, Prowls around like a roaring lion. We just sang about the lion of of Judah. There's also the roaring lion that's Satan. He's seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, he tells us one more characteristic of God to know in our anxiety, the God of all grace. Paul calls him the God of all comfort. Peter calls him the God of all grace. It's because we experience the comfort of God by the grace of God. He says this, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, what a beautiful ending, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's going to end by telling them what they should do when they are anxious. And here's the first thing he says. You can see it in verse six. He says, when you are anxious, humble yourself under the hand of God. When you are anxious, humble yourself under the hand of God. Now, listen, this is going to be the most counterintuitive and countercultural thing I'm going to say in this whole sermon. The Bible connects anxiety to pride. The Bible says something that no one in culture will tell you, that anxiety is a lack of humility. That anxiety is actually arrogant. And let me explain why. There's three reasons why. Because when a person is anxious, they want to be God. Now, they don't say that out loud. They just say, I'd like to know everything, and I'd like to be in control. (laughs) I'd like to know everything is omniscience. I'd like to be in control of everything is omnipotence. That's kind of the definition of pride. I'd like to be God. Another reason is that what what, uh, anxiety often says is, I don't believe you, God. Now, we don't say that out loud. It's a lot kinder. We we never feel, and I start with anxiety. I I get anxious at times. But we never feel when we're anxious like we're being prideful. It doesn't, it feels kind of humbling. It feels like, oh no, woe is me, which by the way is a type of pride, right? Despair is a type of pride. I deserve better. I should be, self pity is a type of pride. It's just a more sophisticated type of pride. And so if somebody was going around going, I don't believe the Bible, I know God says He cares for me, I don't believe Him. I know God says He has a plan for me, I don't believe Him. I know God said since He gave His only Son, Romans 8, and he met that great need that he'll meet all my other little or lesser needs. It's an argument from greater to the lesser. If he did the biggest thing, he'll do everything else. I don't believe that. If somebody said that, we would try to hopefully humbly and carefully and kindly and call them up and not call them out. But we'd probably try to say, hey, that's, not, that's very prideful to say that. See, by the way, we live in a culture right now where a lot of um, people think it's humble to question God's word. It's not humble to question what God's been clear about. God's very clear about his promises. But here's the third reason. Um, anxiety is very selfish and self-centered. Have you ever been anxious about something and then you talk to someone about it they're like, we weren't even talking about you. You're like, oh, okay, good, I'm not anxious anymore because <laughs> I thought it was all about me. A lot of our anxiety is about, am I gonna be taken care of? It, it, it's me and I. What's the, what's the middle letter in anxiety? I. What's the middle letter in pride? I. It's, it's all about me and my needs. Be, and here's what he said. Here's the an- antidote. The antidote to pride is humility. And he says, humble yourself under the hand of God. Now, God doesn't have hands. It's talking about God the Father. God the Father does not have a real hand. He's spirit. So what does the hand of God mean? The hand of God is invisible and everywhere. The hand of God is the plan of God. That's what it represents. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament, the phrase the hand of God. It's used in the Old Testament all the time. In the Old Testament, God would say, with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, I'm going to save my people. The hand of God is the plan and providence of God. Here's what it means. What, here's how, and this is hard, and I can't answer every question on God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, but here's what the Bible says. Humility begins by realizing God's in control. Humility begins by saying everything that happens in my life is father-filtered. Humility begins by saying there are no accidents when it comes to God's perspective. There may be accidental pregnancies, there's never an accidental baby. That God's, everything that happens in my life is father-filtered. Now, I, I, I struggle to believe that, but, but I've been around a lot of godly people and I've gotten to see people who believe that. I remember I had to break, break bad news to a very godly man one time. I walked into his office and it was gonna be bad news that was going to affect him negatively and affect him negatively for several years probably. And I remember walking in and telling him this news, it took me a while to get it out and I tell him it, it wasn't a sin issue or anything, but it was just something that was gonna be very negative on him. And his first response to me, I'll never forget this, he goes, this is what providence has given us. And I was like, okay, first of all, you're a lot deeper than me. <laughs> Second of all, I need to go look up what the word providence means. No, <laughs> what he meant by that is God, providence is just a big theological word for God oversees everything. And what he was saying in that moment, this is so powerful, this is why a lot of these things are hard, but then they're hopeful, right? It's like, okay, part of your anxiety is unbelief. Well, maybe you could believe by the grace of God. It's, a, it's hard, but then hopeful. In the same way, it's like, okay, God's in control. What are the other options? God's not in control. God was sleeping. God doesn't know what's going on. God's weak. It's like, well, those options, if you play them out, are no better. They're not biblical and they're also no better. So he's saying what happens is if you realize that everything that's happening is is the hand of God is in it. And look, we know this if we look at the rearview mirror of our life, not the windshield. Whenever we look for the windshield of our life, we're like, how's this happening? Why am I still single? Why do I have this job? Why do I have this illness or injury? And then usually later in life, as you look through the rearview mirror, you go, that makes sense. And honestly, that's why, by the way, we have, That's why it's good to study your Bibles, the Old Testament and, and, the, and the Gospels and to know church history because then you realize you can actually see the providence of God in many different things. Now, now, what is humility? Here's a great definition of humility. This is actually, this is not even the definition. It's what the word means in the Greek. It literally means to know your place. That's what humility means. It means spiritual self-awareness. We're all into the Enneagram and what's my number and, you know, how do I understand my, fine, that's fine. But, but there's, there's a lack of spiritual self-awareness. Now, how do you know yourself? You can't know yourself by yourself. You know that. The only way you can know yourself is God's word and God's people. You've got to be in God's word so it can be a mirror and you can see yourself. And then you've got to be around God's people so they can tell you that's weird, that's awkward, <laughs> you know, you, that's, that's a sin. Uh, I, I see how you relate to your spouse and your, your kids. And so what it means is it just means to see yourself rightly. It does not, like I said earlier, it does not mean to have low self-esteem. Low self-esteem is just a more sophisticated form of pride. Woe is me, life should be going so much better. Why? Why should life be going better for you? If you play that out, you realize it's just because you have a high view of yourself, cloaked in low self-esteem. And so it means to know know your place, which is very difficult in our culture because in our culture, pride is a virtue, not a vice. William Bennett, he wrote this great book on on virtues, I'd recommend it. Great book, tons of great virtues in it. Guess which one's missing? Humility. Because in America, humility is not a virtue, it's instead of vice. And we have, the opposite of humility is pride, which is an inflated view of yourself. And, And we live in a culture where people have such an inflated view of themselves. In fact, I was reading an article about why so many millennials struggle with depression. And the argument said, the the article said that what has happened is millennials have believed so many lies about how great they are, and then they get out into the real world and they realize, I'm not going to make seven figures, not going to marry a supermodel, not going to solve the world's problems, not going to have a ton of free time. It's like, nobody's going to do that. And what ends up happening is they hit 25 or 30 or 35, and they get depressed. And and what happens is we have this inadequate, inflated view of ourselves, like, so when they did a study of all of the high schoolers, international study of high schoolers. Uh, Americans ranked low on math, we ranked low on reading, we ranked low on science, and we ranked high on self-esteem. Think about that. I can't read, I can't write, I can't do math, I'm awesome. (laughs) Right? But you're like, well, that's kind of how you feel sometimes. It's like, you know, if you, and, and it's always a painful experience if somebody confronts you on something that's true, and then you're like, oh, now I need to see myself differently, and that's the painful grace of self-awareness in my life. But um, we, we live in such a time where pride is elevated. In fact, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, the, the, the number one reason they're not going to respond positively or, um, and repent and believe is going to be pride. They're going to either say, um, it can't be that easy, or they're going to say, I'm not that bad, which are both prideful statements. I can't be that easy. It can't be that easy means I would like to earn it. And I'm not that bad means I'm a lot better than God thinks I am. And I didn't break God's law, and I haven't broken God's heart. You know, the old question, by the way, if you read, it's it's amazing how how history is. The old question people used to ask is how can a holy God love a sinful person like me? That's the historic question of the church. The, the, The modern millennial question is how couldn't God love me? It's like, man, you have such an inflated view of yourself. That's the problem. And you've not been in God's Word, you've not been around God's people. You have a standard that's only yourself. And so the first thing he's saying is if you want to pursue um, fighting anxiety, you need to pursue humility. Secondly, he's going to say, when you are anxious, trust God's heart. When you're anxious, trust God's heart. Verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so high view of God, big God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And then he says this, casting all of your anxieties Not just some, but all. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, When I was most anxious was probably when we moved here three years ago. We had sold our house while we were renting it back, while we bought a house, while we were fixing it up, while we were raising money for a church that didn't exist in a building we didn't have with a launch team we didn't know, in a city we never lived in. I'd never been the lead pastor of a church. There was just a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty about the future. Now, what is anxiety? Here's the definition of anxiety. Anxiety is the future minus hope. Anxiety is a vision of the future. You look tomorrow at being a single mom and what your day looks like and you just feel like no hope. You look at this next year being single again and you're like, I, I look at no hope. You look at next week and the work you don't want to do and the job you don't like and you feel like no hope. You look at your income level over the next year and you feel like no hope. What it is, is that you look toward the future, and, and, you, and it's a pessimistic, which Christians should be optimistic long-term, especially, for the future, but it's a pessimistic view of the future. And this is very, very common. Tim Keller says, and this is beautiful, Tim Keller says, anxiety, is, and he's a pastor in New York City, uh, an, uh, Tim Keller says, anxiety is this, God is going to get it wrong. That's, what anxi- that's the prayer of anxiety, God's going to get it wrong. And he said, so anxiety looks to your future and says, God's gonna get it wrong. He says, bitterness looks to your past and says, God got it wrong. And so many of us live in one of those two areas. Either God's, God uh, is gonna get it wrong or God got it wrong. Now, the more you study anxiety, the more you realize we, and I mentioned some at the beginning, we could be anxious about so many things. Some of you, you are anxious about something. You're anxious because of something that you did. You, something you looked at, somebody you were with, Somewhere you went, something you said, something you did. I heard one pastor, he said it this way. A lot of people are anxious that their past is going to show up in their present and ruin their future. It's like why no one wants to run for political office, right? It's like, "Mm -mm, no, not today. I don't want my past. This is like what happens to every political candidate. Their past shows up in their present and ruins their future. Well, we all have things in our past. I'm guessing. That we might have anxiety about if anyone ever found out about them or the wrong people found out about them, and it might ruin our future. So that's one type of anxiety. Some people have anxiety because of something they know they need to do that they've been avoiding or ignoring. Some people have anxiety because it's like, I know I need to confess this sin. I know, I, I know I've been saying that I can handle it by myself, but if I could really have handled it by myself, I, would have, I wouldn't have been struggling with this for like seven years, on and off. And so I know I need to confess it, but I'm afraid. Or I, need to, I know I need to have this hard conversation, or I know I need to share my testimony. And so we have all this different anxiety. And, and what you realize is, is he gives you the cure to anxiety in verse 7. And it's simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Here's what he says. Casting all of your anxieties on him. In other words, give your anxieties to God. Well, what's the opposite of that? Holding on to them. Do you know that anxiety is meditation on the wrong thing? You know, the Bible says, hey, meditate on my word. Think my Meditation is think God's thoughts after him. That's the definition of Meditation whatever God has said in his word, think those thoughts. By the way, this is why when Paul, when Paul deals with anxiety in chapter four of Philippians, he's like, um, don't be anxious. And then he says, think on these things, what's good and pure and beautiful. What he's saying is you need to meditate on the, you got to win the battle of the mind. And that you have to meditate on the right things. And, and anxiety is meditating on uh, the future minus hope, basically. And so, what you realize is that anxiety has no advantage and worry doesn't work. That if you, the more you are anxious, the opposite of casting will be to hold on to them. And if you hold on to them, it doesn't do you any benefit. You can't control the past or change the past, you can't control the future. And worry, I think you know this too, often makes things worse. You start getting an incredibly anxious, what do you start doing? You're eating too much, or you're not eating at all, or you're drinking too much, or you're sleeping too little or your eye starts to twitch and everyone thinks you're flirting with them, okay? (laughs) I mean, these these things happen. People have anxiety, and so what do you do? You have to give it to God. Now, here's what it means. When it says cast your anxieties, it literally means dump them, unload them, let them go. It's not even a a big word of effort. The whole idea is just let them go. The idea is to talk to God about everything. It's like, what are you anxious about? Oh, I'm anxious about my marriage. Talk to God about it. Give it to God. I knew one guy, he said that he actually just liked to visibly do this. I mean, this isn't in the Bible, I'm just showing you. Put your, you know, but he used to, to like to put his hands out, give it to the Lord, and then symbolically turn his hand over. Say, Lord, I'm, just, I'm giving you my marriage right now. It's very difficult. I'm giving you my rebellious child. I'm symbolically doing that, and I'm trusting you with it. I'm giving you my sick grandchild. And I'm just going to give this to you, and I'm going to, I'm going to trust you. Doesn't mean I'm not praying about it anymore, doesn't mean I'm not making decisions, doesn't mean I'm not ambitious, doesn't mean I'm not moving toward things, but I'm going to give it to you. The truth is, if we don't give God our anxieties, we will find a functional savior to deal with our anxieties. Sometimes our functional savior is called alcohol. And the reason people drink too much, the number one reason is because of what alcohol, the reason that alcohol is the number one abused drug is because it deals with anxiety. I'm not a doctor again, but as I've read about it, what it does is it, 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 loosens, relaxes, and warms the part of your brain that deals with anxiety. This is why people who are nervous and they're going out to party, what do they want to do? They want to drink. Why? Because it calms them down. This is why one of the first signs that somebody's depressed or somebody's struggling with anxiety is they're sleeping a lot. It's too painful to be awake. It's too painful to be conscious. This is why a lot of times people find themselves in unhealthy relationships. I'm not saying in every situation, but often what I've seen happen is a girl who has a lot of anxiety ends up in the wrong relationship with a bad guy. Why? Because he knew where he was going. Because he was going in the wrong direction, but he was headed somewhere. Because he, he looked like somebody who was in control of his life, and her life felt so out of control. And so we need to begin to give these. And then here's the second thing you do, and this is a big, big thing in the Bible, and I'll show you where it comes from, but after you cast them and confess them, you confront them. You cast and confess your anxieties, and you voluntarily and incrementally confront them. I mean, that's taught from Genesis through Revelation. Every, so there are 365 fear knots in the Bible, which is just another way to say, give God your anxiety. It is the most common command in Scripture. There's enough. There's one for every day of the year, except on leap year, okay? Okay. Um, and, and, and what it's saying with fear not, it's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give them to God, and then I want you to voluntarily and incrementally confront them by faith in Christ and by the grace of God. Because if you don't, your your circle is only going to get smaller. You're going to get more and more afraid of things. And I've actually seen this happen. This is, by the way, why, why when I'm talking to couples, one of the biggest things I talk to people about is, are you able to talk about this conflict? Are you able to have a conversation about this? No, we can't. That's a problem. You are so afraid to talk about this issue. It's paralyzing to you. That what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to confront and talk about the things you're fearful and the things that you're afraid of. Here's the next thing he says. He says, after that, when you are anxious, resist the enemy of God. When you are anxious, resist the enemy of God. Verse eight, he says this, be sober-minded, and that means more than don't get drunk. What that means is be spiritually awake and alert. And then he says this, be watchful. Now, that's interesting. That, that, that literally means to pay attention. Paying attention is different than thinking. When you're thinking, you're thinking about what you already know. You're thinking on it. You're meditating on it. When you're paying attention, you're watching for what you don't know. You're watching for what you don't understand. Why is our marriage so difficult right now? Why has our son been acting differently? Why is that person up in attending group? Why? You're looking for what you don't know. That's By the way, that's one of the definitions of humility. I'm looking for what I don't understand and what I don't know because I know there's so much I don't know and I don't understand. He says this, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What he's saying is that we have a real enemy and his name is Satan or the devil. Now today, most people, they think the devil is kind of a, you know the, the devil is in a red suit with a pitchfork and you know lives in hell and is throwing a big party. That's kind of the classic kind of, or you, or you could watch Lucifer on Netflix and get an idea of the devil, I guess. Or you could watch Good Omens on, on Amazon. It's amazing how I'll, I'll, even these main, mainstream TV shows are now having kind of a commentary on the devil. Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to realize that the devil's real. Now, this is interesting because um, there was an interview with Antonin Scalia. Antonin Scalia was a Supreme Court justice who, who died in the last few years and during an interview, they were talking about good and evil in this interview, and the devil, the conversation about the devil came up with a, a Supreme Court justice. It doesn't happen every day. So I have the transcript here. Listen to this. He, this. This young guy comes and interviews him from the New Yorker. They start talking about good and evil, and this is what Anthony Scalia says. I believe in the devil. Of course I do. Yeah, he's a real person. Come on, that's standard Catholic doctrine. Every Catholic believes that. In the Gospels, the devil's doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs. He's possessing people and whatnot. And that doesn't happen very much anymore. What he's doing now is getting people not to believe in him or in God. He's much more successful that way. So he says this, and then I guess, because it's not audio, I just had the transcript, I guess the writer of The New Yorker looks at him really strangely. And I know this because of the next thing he says. You're looking at me as though I'm weird context clue. Um, You're looking at me as though I'm weird. I love this. He's just calling the guy out. So he's talking about the devil and the guy looks at him where he goes, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed the devil. It's in the gospels. I love this. You travel in circles that are so far removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anyone would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of human history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. So he tells us there is this devil and that what the devil does is he does two things. He roars and he prowls around. Now, why would... A lion roaring like a lion. Why does a lion roar? To cause and create anxiety. What, what, a, what a lion will do is in a situation will roar, and if there's a bunch of sheep together, and what, what happens? They all scatter. And then he can isolate and go after individuals, right? Because in general, loud noises can make us anxious. I happen to have a very loud voice, OK? <laughs> My wife, every once in a while, God bless her, in the most Christ-centered, humble, godly, spirit-filled way, um, will say to me, Kyle, you are talking so fast and so loud right now that it's giving me anxiety. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and, then, and then I'll talk slower and lower, and I'm like, that was ridiculous. I have no idea why I was talking that loud. But, you know, but, but it just creates anxiety. And so, what, he's saying that what happens is that Satan will try to intimidate you, he'll try to scare you, but then he says, he prowls around. Now, that's the second tactic. That's the patient tactic. That's the, I'm going to walk around and wait for the right opportunity to strike. Now, this is interesting. What he's saying is, Satan's looking and saying, okay, is there a teenager, is there a teenage girl I can put an addiction in so that she'll never live a normal life? Is there a marriage that's starting out, and I'll just let them uh, have secret sin and bitterness toward one another and not know how to deal with conflict? And that marriage that marriage maybe they'll be faithful, it'll never flourish. Is there a divisive person I could place in a community group? Is there a divisive person that I could put a, a seed of bitterness and resentfulness toward the church in? That will divide and destroy the church. This is what Satan's doing. I remember I was talking to a mentor pastor. He was talking to several of us, and he said, Satan is very patient. He prowls like a line. And he said, if you look at it, everybody looks at all the megachurch pastors that had moral failures. And a lot of times they'll go, why at the height of their career? Why when their church was the biggest? Why when their ministry was the largest? Why when the baptisms were the most? It's like, because Satan wanted to wait till the moment where he could have the biggest impact on the kingdom of Christ for negative. And, and those guys thought they were getting away with something. And, you know, what you learn from Scripture and history is that you never get away from anything. You never get away with anything, ultimately. And so what he says here is, it's interesting. He says, resist the devil. Now, let me clarify this. He never, it's verse 9, he says, resist him firm in your faith. Uh, in the Bible, we are never told to resist sin. We're told to run from sin. We're told to resist Satan. It's because you can't really resist sin. Like, the more you think about it, the more you're going to do it, Right? The more you maul over in your mind what your boss did and how bitter you are and how your friend did this and the more bitter you are, right, what happens? The more you try to resist it, I don't want to think about it, the more you think about it. The more I tell you, don't think about a pink elephant. Don't you ever think about an elephant that would be pink. It's like, well, okay, I don't want to think about it. Well, you're going to think about it. So the way that you deal with sin is you either run from it, like you have the example of Joseph in the Old Testament, right, Potiphar's wife, if you know that story, comes after him. He puts his Nike, Nikes on and gets out of there. He, he runs. The, the language in scripture, what does is, what is Paul say to Timothy? Flee youthful passions. Flee them. Run away as fast and far as you can. But, then it, but when it comes to the devil, it says resist. It, it, how do you resist the devil? You resist the devil with God's word. It's the same way Jesus did. When, and the main tactic that he's going to use is going to try to lie to you. And you say, I'm not going to believe those lies. I'm going to believe truth instead of the anxiety and lies I feel. I'm going to believe that God loves me, that God's for me, that Christ died for me that I'm forgiven, that I'm not forgotten by God. Here's what he's saying, the difference between running from God, or sorry, running from sin and resisting Satan. He's saying saying if you go home tonight and the devil was sitting on your front porch, you should get your Bible out and be like, all right, let's go, I'm ready, I got the word of God. But if you show up and it's your ex-girlfriend, get back in the car and get out of there (laughs) because you can't handle the temptation. Finally, he says this, when you are anxious, remember the grace of God. When you are anxious, remember the grace of God. Now the grace of God is what makes Christianity unique. You can't buy it, you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, it's given to you freely. It's unmerited, it's undeserved, it's unearned. It's the opposite of karma. Karma is you get what you deserve, the grace of God is you don't get what you deserve. And he's going to end with the grace of God, because when it comes to anxiety, of course there's going to be mistakes you've made. Of course there's going to be sins. Of course there's going to be failures and faults and flaws. And you're going to need to continue to look at the grace of God to cover it all. And look how he ends here. Verse 10, and after you've suffered a little while, and you go, well, how long's a little while? Just your entire life. <laughs> Some of you are like, I thought it was going to say next month. Sorry, it says your whole life. Which is an interesting expectation for your life. You should expect two things in your life, according to verse 10. Suffering in the grace of God. Which are really healthy expectations. Well, what, 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 what should medical school have? Suffering in the grace of God. What should marriage have? Suffering in the grace of God. How about raising kids? Suffering in the grace of God. How about trying to build my family, build my career? Suffering in the grace of God. What about all my relationships? Suffering in the grace of God. Here's what he says. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, which also reminds us that if we're suffering, it's not that God isn't gracious. Sometimes we think, oh, God is gracious, which means he's going to make my life easy and comfortable. Actually, it means that he's going to be with you and help you get through the difficult times. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He gives you an eternal perspective. Part of how you deal with anxiety is you look past this life to the next. And he says this, will, and he ends with this beautiful benediction of four things that the grace of God will do at the end of time, at the resurrection of Christ. He said, number one, it's going to restore you. That part of the reason that people get so anxious is because either they've lost something or they're afraid they're going to lose something. People are anxious. I've lost a son. I've lost a brother. I've lost a sister. I've lost a mom. I've lost a dad. And it's real. And and the hope of Christianity, the hope of the resurrection is that you actually get your Christian brother back. You get your Christian sister back. You get your Christian mom back. It's the the promise of not just the renewal of all things, but the restoration of all things. And then look what he says. Then you're going to confirm it. He said, I'm going to confirm it. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you everything you believed about me was true. All the promises are true. Everything about Christ is true. Everything about the final judgment is true. And then he says, not only that, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to confirm you. I'm going to strengthen you. Some people have anxiety because they feel so weak. They feel weak relationally. They feel weak intellectually. They feel weak financially. They feel weak emotionally. And he's saying, I'm going to strengthen you. And then finally he says, I'm going to establish you, which is not a great translation. It means I'm going to settle you, which means I'm going to settle all accounts. Some people are anxious because there's so much injustice in the world. You know, I mean, just this week, Jeffrey Epstein, the whole, if you're following the news, if you're not sleeping under a rock somewhere. I mean, the, the whole Jeffrey Epstein situation where a guy ends up killing himself in prison while he's a convicted pedophile and is going to go to court. And, and part of the, what everybody on the left and the right and everything is saying, where's the justice? And you can't look for justice in situations like that in this world completely. What's a justice for a mass shooter who shoots everybody then shoots himself? There is no justice in this world for that. You have to look beyond this world to a good God who says everything's going to be paid for either at the cross or in the lake of fire. And it lets us say, I don't have to judge every person, handle every account, deal with every situation perfectly. Which is why he can end positively in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. He ends in worship. He he goes from worry to worship. And he does that not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. There is nobody who has humbled themselves under the hand of God more than Jesus Christ. He humbled himself to becoming a man, to dying a death, to dying a death on a cross under the wrath of God. He wasn't just humbled, he was humiliated for us. And what did God do? At the proper time, God exalted him. And see, Jesus Christ, I told you at the beginning, the two greatest anxieties that every time a study is done, no matter what part of the world it's done in, they have the same two anxieties. I don't want to die. I don't want to be found out and shamed and publicly embarrassed. It's like, well, those are real because you're going to die and you've done things wrong. So Jesus Christ deals with our two main anxieties at the cross. He dies for us in our place, tastes death for us. He dies for all of our sins so that even if we are publicly exposed, we can go, yeah, I'm a sinner, you're right. And I actually need the grace of God just as much as anyone else, if not more. And I need to experience the grace of God in my life. Listen, the reason God wants us to be freed up for anxiety is because he wants us to, it's for our good. He wants us to be freed up to love him, to love our Christian brother and sister and to love the world. And we can't love people if we're afraid of them. We can't love people if we fear them. God wants us to be freed up to love Him, love the church and love the world. Let's pray. Lord, I, I just want to right now give us an opportunity, just individually in our hearts, to confess any anxiety that we have and just to cast it on you. Maybe we want to say something like, "Lord, I give you my anxiety about and whatever it would be for you. Maybe it's about your kids, maybe it's about school, maybe it's about finances. Maybe it's about something that you've done or something that you need to do, and I just just give it to the Lord. Maybe you just need to take a moment. You need to humble yourself and say, Lord, help me to know my place. Help me to know these two realities of my life, that you have a mighty hand and you have a caring heart. What do you need in your life right now to accept? You need to say, "Lord, I just accept this. I accept this is what, the stage of life you have me in." Doesn't mean I don't have godly ambition. Doesn't mean I don't desire things, but I'm—I see your hand and your heart in this. Lord, I pray for our church that we would be freed from anxiety. That we would be freed up to love our neighbors, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to love our family members who are far from God but close to you, Lord. Give us the grace to humble ourselves, to resist the devil, and to trust in the grace of God. We pray this in your name. Amen.